take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and join us for our weekly commentary on tech news. We've got stories on T-Mobile and Starlink, co-packaged optics for Broadcom, trouble for Twitter, Dell Financial Results, and more. We're sponsored today in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak and get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash network break and stick around after the news where we have a sponsored tech bytes conversation with Ogterra. They provide AI ops with algorithms specifically designed for networking. Key features include anomaly detection, network modeling, and event correlation. All right, before we dive into the news, Greg, we have an FU, a follow-up. Uh, we had, I guess, a few episodes back talked about Cloudflare blocking an impressive DDoS attack, uh, I guess a high number of requests per second. Uh, and then this person wrote in to say that they recently read that Google claims to hold the new world record for DDoS attacks, reaching 46 <laughs> million requests per second that they blocked. Yeah, I, I didn't put this one in. I did see it, but I didn't cover it because at the time we had fairly full agendas in those weeks and I didn't. There's only so many times you can talk about DDoS at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, but since you raise it, um, it, it does seem to me that Google and Cloudflare keep on up, you know, one-upping each other and it's cheap press, right? Sure. And, you know, Akamai does it and so forth. It's really easy. You know, we presented a DDoS, a world-beating. <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of media that will just echo that to fill up the space or, you know, mm -hmm. get some page views. And so, um, and of note here is that it's a Layer 7 DDoS, not a Layer 3. Layer 3 DDoS is kind of like, Oh, very two decades ago kind of thing. Um, and layer seven DDoS attacks actually exhaust all of the systems in the pipe. So if you've got load balancers or application inspection firewalls or then any, you know, they every time you have an application layer attack, they have to do the inspection mm -hmm. before they, and if you're lucky, they drop it, right? Otherwise it gets through and then all your servers get taken down. So the fact that this is, you know, tens of millions of requests, and in fact, Google claims it to be 46 million requests, we can't audit that or prove that, of course, we have to trust what Google says. Um, but they're saying 46 million requests is actually, and that is significant. Keep in mind that the second largest event was Cloudflare, which reported on the 14th of June, and that's only two months ago, <laughs> at 26 million uh, requests, requests per second. Per second. Yes. So that's important. But keep in mind, these things are distributed, right? They're not bringing them back to one data center. These organizations have edge nodes all around the world, and then the DDoS uh, network's get a collection of sites all over the world and then turn them all on. So it's not like there's 46 million requests terminating in a single data center somewhere. They're spread out and distributed all around the edge of the internet as such. So it's not quite as horrific as it would have been, say, 20 years ago when, you know, once, you know, you had a server farm and a load balancer. And <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think. So, yes, it is significant, but, you know. It is. And also some of the big internet giants have gotten good at uh, doing this DDoS filtering uh, sort of for us on our behalf, as opposed to you having to have a, a whole DDoS infrastructure in place in your own organization. Now, when you've got, you know, dozens or hundreds of data centers all around the edge of the network and Google's got pops and CDNs right. and, you know, whatever. Not, it is significant that they can stop that, but it's not, a, I, I don't think that would have been an all hands to the pump moment that might have been sort of like oh that's un that's unusual we better start <laughs> do you know what i mean like doesn't they probably uh, saw as many requests saying, per second for the new game of thrones kicking off yeah, as they did well, for none this of them DDoS. are saying like their services went down because of the ddos right 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 so um you know i think we're sort of at the point where ddos is a fact of life we're well practiced at it the systems that are in place can generally manage it but you know so, yeah, that's kind of why I'm sort of leaning away about breathlessly reporting every single instance of this and talking about something that might be more interesting. So I hope that's okay. If not, 
head us over to send us your follow-up um, and your feedback. Go to packetpushes.net slash fu for follow-up and uh, tell us what you're thinking and we'll always try and put it in the show. And if we say something wrong, we always put it at the top of the show to correct it next week. So that's the best we can do. Um, and we love getting your feedback, good, positive or indifferent, right. whatever. And just to say thanks to this listener who advised us to enjoy a real donut for once, we'll, we'll take that under advisement. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go and get some. <laughs> All right, let's get into the news. Uh, first, T-Mobile and Starlink have announced a partnership in which Starlink satellites will provide internet service to T-Mobile phones in the United States. Uh, this is still a work in progress. It requires bigger satellites and more powerful antennas to actually get a signal to a standard mobile phone. Elon Musk said a beta could be available by the end of 2023. Yeah. So the, the takeaway from this is that it's bluffware. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing here, literally. Um, what's apparently happening is that there's an Apple event next week. So this is being recorded on the 26th of August, Friday, the 26th of August. On the 7th of September, Apple is uh, putting an event on and it appears to be commonly known or well understood that Apple will announce the same thing just in Apple's way. It will be ready to ship. They're partnering with a company called Global Star who have an existing satellite network mm. um, and they have the capability to adapt their existing satellites to be able to take it. Now, we don't know what form that will take. So the general assumption is that they wanted to get this into the market and get press for their non-existent, doesn't happen, won't be around for another year or two or three if it happens at all um, in the hope that they won't lose all the customers to uh, Apple. Does that make sense? <laughs> classic. It's a classic technique. It, it's a classic, yeah. Apple won't be at all pleased. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, as we know, Elon Musk does like to shoot from the hip. So you do think that um, this will take Starlink two satellites. These are the big uh, geo, uh, geosynchronous orbit satellites that will have to go up. He has to design everything that has to happen with this. So they have to design new phased array antennas that can pick up a mobile phone signal. So your mobile phone can transmit a signal at something like up to three watts, no special antennas, ordinary phones will be working for this. And it will only be limited in the case of Starlink to two to four megabits per second per cell. Now a cell might be a very large space or a very small space, but it's very difficult to get high speed. So you probably won't be watching video. At best, you might be sending a text message and maybe a voice, a few voice calls, say 30 or 40 voice calls in that available bandwidth. So it's not huge, but it does work, right? So it does expand the reach of mobile phone networks into whole new places. Right. Now, if you want to think why they would want to do that, think about uh, meeting government requirements to provide coverage. <laughs> And getting bonuses and free free government money, getting taxpayer money to uh, right. meet certain coverage goals. Yes, for right? your rural coverage, so, uh, yes, mandates. Uh -huh, yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So text messages and, and, and voice calls, if you can get that, not data, then, you know, maybe you can say, hey, look what we did. And, of course, for SpaceX, uh, Starlink is very important because it's basically its revenue source for running its space program. So the existing satellites on the Falcon 9 rockets are data only. Those satellites can't be adapted for this. They don't have enough power and they don't have the ability to hold a tenner large enough. So it won't come around until the Starship rockets come around, you know, if they work. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you really aren't kidding that they still have to build all of the, the components to get this to work, not just the satellites, but they actually need a bigger rocket to get these satellites into space. So there's a lot that has to happen mm -hmm. before this actually becomes a reality. That's right. So it'll be Starship 2, which hasn't flown yet. They've just, you know, and they've had lots of problems trying to get it to work. They keep blowing up and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, they're not expected to fly for the testing until the end of this year. And then, of course, between now and whenever this ships, it has to have new satellites built. 
you know? Well, we know that uh, the satellite SpaceX version 2 of the satellites has been uh, in design for some time for the data network, but now they're going to add this on the back. They think they're going to do it by the end of next year. Very optimistic. And then the final problem here is that uh, SpaceX does not have, or Starlink does not have FCC approval to do this. You need to... (laughs) Um, apply for a license and to, and the FCC is responsible for managing spectrum to make sure that people who get allocated spectrum are not being disempowered or disenfranchised. Uh, SpaceX does not own it. That, of course, is why they're partnering with T-Mobile because T-Mobile, T-Mobile does own the spectrum that they want to use. But um, Starlink does not have a license to operate satellites in this spectrum space. They've got a temporary license. I was following a Twitter thread from somebody called TMF Associates. It's, I've got a link here if you want to follow the source. Um, they have a trial or a test license to ship 10 to 30 satellites as a proof of concept, but no license. So once again, a little musky talking before, you know, talking before he's got the, everything straight. So that is, and that is not how Apple works at all. Right. I'm sure FCC approval is at the bottom of Elon Musk's concern list to knowing how he operates. Yeah. Generally he'll try and bully his way through, yeah. you know. I'm a billionaire. I get what I want. Right. You, you don't uh, like it. Getting, shoot down my satellites, FCC. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, it's getting less and less pal- palatable to sort of see this thing, you know, see that happening over time. But I suspect that it'll, you know, eventually the governments will say, yeah, we do want to have coverage. And, you know, and they can say, what about the children? You know, <laughs> they're going to pull that stunt like messaging and safety and emergency sure. calls and all that. Sure. You know, so it really it, it is. It probably is not a he, huge barrier. It is not a huge barrier. He's probably going to be able to bully and get what he wants out of this just by going public and pretty much going to happen. But still, you know, all those things have to happen in 18 months. That's a big ask. I suspect that will slip over time. Yeah, we'll see. As as is the way. I mean, when Musk announces something, 95% of the time it ships way, way. It's like Tesla self-driving. That was supposed to be delivered three years ago, mm-hmm. fully, completely, right. Right? right? And it still doesn't work. So. <laughs> You know, full full self driving still is not full, right? And it's barely self driving even when attended. So, yeah. Uh, Ars Technica has a good story. If you want more details, that'll be in the uh, uh, show notes that accompany this podcast. We will move on. Broadcom has announced a partnership with Chinese cloud giant Tencent to build and run network switches using co-packaged optics. Co-packaged optics they use alongside the Switch ASIC. Broadcom says it can reduce optics cost and power consumption. Yeah, so this idea is that you you have an ASIC and then built into the ASIC is some form of silicon photonics, which you then feed into a fiber optic cable, which you then run directly to the front of the box. So instead of having SFPs and then a SIRDES and then an ASIC, you have some way to bypass some of this. And this is uh, allows the ASIC to be smaller, f- use less power mostly, and also avoids the use of SFPs, which saves power again, right? right? Because the SFPs are actually little computers in their own right and they consume typically somewhere in the order of three to five watts a piece. And when you've got, you know, a late generation switch, you might have 120 odd, you know, SFPs each pulling three to five watts. Well, that's quite a bit of power in a data center. And so we're seeing this is really a technology for the mega scale clouds like Tencent, Tencent, for example. Mm -hmm. And the way that it works is you you have this um, switch which ships, but you only get to have one type of interface. So when the chip is manufactured and the lines are cut, they're all single mode or multi-mode, and that's it. You can't change it after that. Whereas most enterprises or most normal organizations tend to put a mix in. So they'll run uh, SFP modules that'll be running coax of some sort or you know the, the direct ca- uh, cabling. They might want to run some multi-mode. They might want to run some single mode. They might want to run ZR, ZR, you know, all sorts of different things. And that's where the SFP comes in because it lets you get more flexibility for the interfaces. So the general perception is co-packaged optics 
do have a, a delivery in a certain niche use case, which today is large enough in the mega scale clouds, but probably not in the enterprise. Yeah, they are uh, going to roll this out as a 2RU switch. 1RU is going to have the pluggable optics uh, sort of for your uh, standard connectivity, and 1RU is going to have MPO connectors for that to take advantage of the optics uh, built in. Yeah, you have to go to MPOs, which is the 12 fiber cores in a single connector when you want that density. So, yeah. And in fact, that's probably what you want because it's just more efficient on the connector space and everything. So, And just to round this out, uh, it's going to be a 25.6 terabit per second switch uh, using Broadcom's Tomahawk 4 ASIC. It's going to be manufactured by Chinese OEM Ruigi and deployed to production by Tencent. Broadcom wanted to make it clear to me when I had the mm -hmm. briefing that this was not a proof of concept. It's actually going to run in production. Yeah. So, the, you know, almost a custom-made switch for a customer, for, for a specific a big customer. customer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. I imagine, you know, there's various discussions that the, you know, we talked about Arista having a lot of packages in the cloud. They do have some CPO or co-packaged optic devices, but they only ship them to Facebook or Microsoft is what the rumor says. Uh -huh. So, yeah. All right, moving on, uh, a former security lead at Twitter has accused the company of deceiving the FTC and SEC by glossing over sloppy security and privacy practices, including the allegation that thousands of Twitter employees have full access to production systems and that half the company's servers are running out of date and vulnerable software. The whistleblower is Peter Zatko, aka Mudge. He is a respected security researcher. Uh, so I read this and went like, eh? Yeah, pretty much as expected. <laughs> don't know. But a lot of, <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's like uh, it, it really feels like you know Twitter terminated his employment and he threw his toys out the cot like a typical security professional and went whiny, whiny, whiny. And but just because he happens to be uh, a very well known, previously worked for the government, he's um, been part of congressional hearings in IT security and things like that. Um, so there's, he has this, and he has a, a massive amount of credibility in the security community as somebody who yep. generally knows what he's doing, but this complaint sort of spells out what I would call pretty typical <laughs> IT security. Standard operating procedure. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say, you know, there's anything in here that was like too bad, like, you know, service without a date operating systems. Yeah, sure. You know, is there... <laughs> Me, yeah, know? I guess uh, the the issue is that uh, apparently Twitter has an agreement with the FTC regarding security and privacy, and he said uh, that Twitter is in violation of those agreements with the FTC, which I guess ramps up the uh, the danger here. Yeah, well, you know, I, I suspect that for all for all workable definitions of security, and there are many, that there'll be a it'll be have been carefully scrutinized by lawyers. I don't think that there's a lot of whole lot of things here. And I know the press got a lot onto this because of Musk, Elon Musk's involvement again, right. because he's <laughs> he said he was going to buy Twitter, but now he doesn't want to buy Twitter because the market fell and he basically wants to get out of it. He's, you know, like we said, not always on his word. Yeah, he's looking for excuses and he's trying to say that uh, Twitter has too many fake accounts, which means that violates uh, mm. their, their disclosure. And so he gets to walk away from the deal and Twitter's actually taken him to court uh, over this, tried to force him to go through with the $44 billion acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, so this- Except when he signed the contract to buy it, there was no exclusions right. <laughs> based around spam, right? It doesn't really matter. A, a contract it, doesn't seem to mean much to him, yeah. so he's happy to, to fight it, yeah. Well, as, as, as some commentators said, he said, when you're a billionaire, uh, you know, as risk rich as Musk is, you get to choose what you, you know, you get to make your own decisions. It doesn't really matter. You're that rich. It doesn't matter. The law doesn't apply to you. We will find out. And so, but in this case, it looks, doesn't look good for Musk um, because the process of doing the, the spam uh, analysis is actually humans randomly selecting a hundred uh, counts a day and then examining them. Well, that is gold standard statistical sampling. 
humans doing the work, select analyzing them and and coming up with a number every day. Not it's not like, you know, once a month or something like that. Mm. They do that every day. Um anybody who does, you know, like if you do a political poll, what's the goal what's the golden level of that? What's the what's the premium level? Pollsters go out in the field and run around the streets and ask questions or ring up people on the telephone, right? Uh-huh. That's what this is. Yep. <laughs> this process. So um, I personally, and, and I think the key here is that Twitter's CEO at the time, every time Mudge turned up to tell him that the pro- there was problems with security, he just went like, stop complaining and get on with it. Um, <laughs> if you ever get into a situation where you're hired to fix security and the CEO won't well, listen to you because you come along whining all the time about something or another, you've blown it. You've really blown it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I feel two ways because I feel like, you know, Twitter should live up to its claims about protecting users and it does have a lot of sensitive information. And uh, so if a security person does come up to you and say there are problems, they should be taken seriously. So, yeah, I, I guess oh, I come kinda, on. I, I know. I know. I'm I'm ridiculous, I, uh... but that's... <laughs> The internet is held together with peanut butter and rubber bands. <laughs> it doesn't have right, to be, though. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> it pretty much does. I mean, it, there's so much happening. There's so much change. And there's so much integration between components that, you know, there's just too many gaps. And so none of this surprises me. I suspect, um, you know, uh, Mudge or has, uh, you know, overstated his importance and probably blew his relationship with his coworkers. And now he comes off as a bit of a rabid, you know, one of those security professionals. Mm. He's probably got viable things to say, but I doubt it. I think this will blow over in a couple of days and uh, nobody would care. And I, th- I think that even if Musk, if Musk wasn't trying to find a way out of buying Twitter, I don't think this would matter he, hardly as much. I don't think this would have even made the press. I agree with you there that uh, the, the mm. spotlight has already been on Twitter because of Musk and uh, Mudge's uh, allegations about Twitter not taking spam seriously sort of ties in nicely with uh, what Elon Musk is, mm. his excuse for trying to get out of the deal. So uh, yeah. that does just keep that whole news cycle going. And just to be clear, I believe that much whatever much has said is true. By the way, right? right. So I'm it's not just standard attacking, operating procedure in most organizations. But it, probably yes, I I think the importance or the criticality or the the meaning of all that doesn't isn't all that is what I'm which saying. in some ways is a, a larger denunciation <laughs> of the industry. But that's for another day, I guess. Yes. Or <laughs> he he thought he was more important than he was. It potentially is the pace that I petition that I might take. There could be aspects of that too. Yes. All right, a uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is online technical training to help you start or grow your IT career. For instance, cybersecurity has more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training from IT Pro TV. If security is not your thing, IT Pro TV has you covered with all sorts of courses across the spectrum of IT, from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on demand training. Instructors are live every day with shows going studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find what you're looking for. You can also learn from where you're at on whatever platform you like. That's uh, You can stream anywhere from Roku, Apple TV, PC, or iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak, and use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. Right back to the news. Uh, Facebook's parent company Meta has agreed to pay $35.7 million to settle a U.S. lawsuit that alleged the company tracked user locations even after users turned off location tracking on their smartphones. Allegedly, Facebook was using the phone's IP address to continue to provide location-targeted ads. The company has denied any wrongdoing, as one does in a settlement. 
<laughs> so I, got, I went in and read the uh, legal uh, pleading. It was basically saying that Facebook, uh, it's, it's a preliminary settlement between the lawyers and it now requires a judge's approval. It was filed in the San Francisco Federal Court. Um, but basically the preliminary settlement says, yes, we agree that we did something wrong. Uh, and I think the key paragraph that I took away is that a user may have reasonably have concluded from the language identified by plaintiffs that Facebook would not collect device locations or IP addresses without user consent. Plaintiffs have plausibly alleged that Facebook failed to disclose its use of enhanced location determination techniques. So basically this suggests that Facebook's lawyers didn't cover the actual basis here in the in the privacy agreement and they've been caught out. So they're just going to pay out $37 million, which for Facebook is nothing. <laughs> And it's basically, you know, like a minute, like a 10 minutes revenue or something right, like that. Right, Um, So there's not, I don't think this changes anything or moves the needle, Drew. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> You're very grim today. And I'm, unfortunately, I'm with you on this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 35 million is nothing for Facebook and probably won't move the privacy needle. I mean, at least someone raised a stink about it. So good for that. And it's, you know, another, you know, yeah. sort of record that yes, privacy is an issue and people are concerned. Yeah, thirty-seven million on a company with a market capitalization of four hundred and fifty billion dollars. Yes, they'll just look <laughs> no. under the couch and be like, "Oh, here's thirty-five million. It won't even, it won't even be that. It'll be like, can we, can I give it to you? You know, let's just do a phone-to-phone -phone transfer and we'll be done." Sort of thing, so. <laughs> but and, you know, it is it is a case of what appears to be the small person getting one over the big person. So, or at least there, the lawyers, there is that. Yes. There is, there is some signs that the, uh, the a law continues to work. People are paying attention. Of, that's, that's what I'm taking yeah, away. Yeah, that's right. Yep. All right, moving on. Uh, Intel's partnering with a financial company to help raise funds as it builds out semiconductor manufacturing facilities in the U.S. According to the agreement, Intel and Brookfield Asset Management are going to jointly invest up to $30 billion to expand manufacturing facilities in Chandler, Arizona. Yeah, so you can tell it's a quiet week when we're talking about stories like this. It's the summer period. It is the summer doldrums, yes. It's summer doldrums. We're just ahead of conferences and events, and so there's a lot of news is being held up as companies wait for the their conference season to start. So, But I think this is interesting because we talk a lot about supply chain and particularly around chip manufacturing and how it affects us, particularly in networking but also in servers and consumer. And this got a lot of press. Uh, and what's actually happening here is that Intel is partnering with an asset manager to fund half or 49% of a new chip fabrication plant. Now, an asset manager is a company who manages money and securities on behalf of a client with the goal of growing the value of an investment over time. So it's a long horizon of investment cycles, whereas Intel needs to make money this year, this quarter, right? right? right. Um, so just to, you might think $30 billion is a lot of dollars. Well, just to keep put this into context, uh, Samsung, there was an article this week, Samsung spending $64 billion US dollars on new production facilities, uh -huh. and TSMC spending is well over $100 billion, I believe it to be something like $120 billion on building the next generation of factories and so forth. Now, Intel just doesn't have that kind of money. It just doesn't have the market capitalization and the cash to be able to do that. And also, it's operating in Western countries. So it's operating in the US and in Europe and, you know, places where like land is expensive, water rights are expensive, electricity rights are expensive. So it does have to spend a lot more. So I am sensitive to that, right? It feels, and Intel's only got a finite amount of cash. So it has to go and find a partner to help them stretch out the cash that they've got. And Gelsing has been reasonably transparent around that. So they are going to take all the government money that they can find because uh, it's free money. But, you know, they do have to work in the Western countries where things are more expensive than, you know, South Korea or where TSMC is in Taiwan. Um, and Gelsinger maintains that owning fab plants is the key to Intel's futures. 
However, I would note that AMD is now more valuable than Intel. AMD is now a $156 billion company versus Intel's $143 billion. So maybe that's, you know, you've got to believe that Intel's going to get those factories up and running and turning them into profits. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess uh, I, my assumption is Intel's looking over the horizon uh, at more repatriation mm. of uh, chip manufacturing in the US, uh, both for supply chain issues and for, you know, sort of global political international security, security issues. Yeah. yeah, national security issues. So I think that's probably a smart move on their part. I think so. And we do need somebody. And really is there's only a handful of companies that can manufacture chips. They have yeah. an existing skills base. And we talked before about having to, you know, where are you going to find people who know how to manufacture chips? We got rid of them 40 years ago and sent and you know, right. moved the skills offshore, right. right? And so that's a thing. So, But that said, Intel does have some momentum here. They've been convincing <coughs> IT vendors to switch their ASIC production to Intel. Um, rumors that I've read this week suggest that Cisco Silicon One is being ported to run the next generation of Silicon One, being ported to run on Intel Fabs. Broadcom's bringing some of its silicon over to Intel and other companies are switching at least some of their lines over to Intel's Fabs now that they've decided to open their Fabs to third party, whereas in the past they never did. Uh All right, links in the show notes if you want to read about that. We will move on. Uh, Dell announced financial results for its second quarter of fiscal 2023. Revenue was $26.4 billion, up 9%, and a record second quarter for the company. Net income was $506 million, down 20% year over year. Uh, even though Dell had a record quarter, shares fell because the company's forecasting lower revenues in the next quarter in anticipation of a slowdown in PC spending by businesses and consumers. Yeah, I looked at the results. One of the things that I noticed a lot was that Dell's core debt has been paid down significantly. So in financial year 2021, it had $33.4 billion worth of debt. And in Q2 of this period, they're down to $16 billion worth of debt. That's pretty good. Remember when they bought them? Yeah. That's pretty good, right? Business must be pretty great over at Dell. Profit margins are astonishingly huge. Um, Their cash flow from operation is up. Their profits are increasing quite a bit. Um, if you're working for Dell and you're not getting a pay rise, you should be asking questions because Dell's getting more money and they should be paying you more money at the same time because their profit margins increased by a very significant amount. Um, they're sitting on a bunch of recurring revenue, but not as much as everybody else. Uh, the net result is that they're also predicting a slowdown into the next couple of quarters, partly driven by falling sales in the client services group, which is, of course, the laptops and desktops, which includes the homes and companies who have bought a lot during the pandemic, right. but they expect it to be slowing down yeah. uh, in the future. And they make a big deal about the fact that their infrastructure solutions group, which is data center or enterprise or you know whatever you want to call it, cloud, Apex and all that sort of stuff is actually growing uh, quite substantially. 12% for the quarter, 9.5 billion. Yeah, which is astonishing. No, um, you know, year over year, by the way, not since last quarter. Right, so. yeah, 12% year over year, yep. Yeah, it was nine point two billion in four Q, nine point three billion in one Q, nine point five billion in two Q. So basically, it's picked up a lot since people came back from the pandemic, as you might expect. I think you know, obviously Dell's doing fine, but the share price was down at the start, but now it's up. So you you decide. <laughs> Pre market, it was down four percent. So <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> stock market's going <laughs> to stock market. Yeah. But it's not a huge drop. Like it's only dropped from like 48 to 46. It's not like, you know, massive spin off the down. Shares are down because uh, future sales are expected to be slightly lower. So the shares are worth slightly less yeah. tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Tell me what you're going to do for me tomorrow. Is how it works. Yeah. 
Equally, VMware produced their results, and it was pretty much a nothing burger, by the way, just to say that. Okay. Um, we can probably- it's pretty clear that they've gone on hold for the Broadcom acquisition. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to quickly mention, now that I think about it, is that VMware, uh, the rumors are out that VMware is slowing down deals that it's doing with customers on long-term licensing. Uh, apparently, customers have swamped VMware sales with deals to lock in the current licensing because the expectation is that when Broadcom acquires the company, that they will increase pricing substantially, and that's what Broadcom said that they would do. Yep, they did. And so customers rushed in and started, and now <laughs> VMware is saying, uh, we're going to start knocking back deals because we don't want to sell them at the old pricing. <laughs> so wow. There's going to be some other happiness out there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So this is a report from a site uh, from Business Insider, and basically what they're saying is that VMware has made commitments to, and the company is saying, here's the company's perspective, VMware has made commitments to preserve the value of VMware until the acquisition is closed. Therefore, we have reinforced our deal review. But (laughs) the company has instituted new policies that are slowing the pace of deals. Noted that, and the news outlet citing several VMware employees noted that the company's salespeople have had difficulty keeping up the pace of new deals as the new policies have made it so that deals can take days, weeks, or even months to be approved. Wow. So, yeah. So, they're just worked that slow out. walking to get you onto the, that higher Broadcom license. Yep. Yeah. Not, not, a, not pleasant. Um, but, you know, that's the reality of the mill we live in. But VMware did okay. Its share price is basically even, and that's pretty much what you would expect. So if you haven't got your VMware licensing deal closed, you're, you're probably out of luck at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Get on the phone, see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> Good luck to you. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the episode. Stay tuned for our Tech Bite with Octera, where we hear about their approach to AI ops designed specifically for networking. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking AI ops with sponsor Ogterra. Now you've probably heard about AI ops, frankly, all over the place, but Ogterra is taking a domain-specific approach by focusing directly on networking. And to tell us more, we're joined by Rahul Argawal. He is founder and CEO of Ogterra. Rahul, welcome to the podcast. Can you start us off? What's the elevator pitch on Ogterra? Ogterra is a purpose-built network AI platform. What we realized is that the market really needs a solution for network operations that's built from the ground up uh, with uh, the networking domain in mind. And that's what we have done. We have brought a networking focused solution to the market. It's widely deployed, adopted by some of the largest and some uh, several smaller enterprises all across the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the idea is that you're doing AI and ML, but you're focusing the algorithms you're designing specifically around networking related issues or the networking domain. That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, uh, in the beginning, we are focusing more on network operations. So our users are the operation teams, the SRE teams, even uh, our network engineers, and mm-hmm. across all domains, data center, WAN, SD-WAN, public cloud, hybrid cloud. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the key features of Octera? If I was a customer coming to you for the first time, what are the three features that you would like to, to talk to them about that you would raise in that conversation? Yeah, see, the first thing really is that if you look at uh, our networks, right, they're very, very complex and they've gotten more and more complex. They've got multiple layers and there is so much data. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so what Octera does is we provide a very high, highly scalable end-to-end product that can be deployed either on-prem or a SaaS or in a hybrid mode. And it can take all forms of network data. So it can take flow data, it can take topology metrics, syslog, generic logs, public cloud logs, 
it can take all this and from this it can start to figure out without the operator telling the the product what's normal it can actually yeah. figure out using unsupervised techniques the misbehaviors with very high fidelity with very very few false positives and this is done using purpose built algorithms we've built over nine algorithms we tried open source algorithms it was garbage in garbage out because they did not understand the network <laughs> i was actually thinking that it would normally take me 6 months to know if there was an anomaly in a new network i'd arrive and i'd start to get to know the network and understand what the business wants and then after about 6 months i'd start to know things like maybe there's an optical problem over here or maybe there's some tcp tra- retransmissions and then i'd start so you're saying you can sort of get to that much quicker absolutely we can mm. and this didn't happen overnight right so first i'll tell you what we can do we can learn the patterns across very granular objects so for example could be a tcp session could be an interface could be a cpu or it can be the aggregate of the traffic coming out of a data center or it can be the aggregate of tcp retransmissions which are happening on my interconnect on my internet circuits for example so yeah. we've got all this flexibility and we can figure this out anywhere from uh 10 days to about 45 days depending on the nature of the algorithms and seasonality and so on mm-hmm. and it's plug and play i just jump on i add your tool to the network you start collecting data from the network you'll be able to build up a baseline and start to detect the fact that there's tcp retransmissions on this link are beyond a certain threshold that's level and i should be and you'd flag that to me you're not going to fix it for me but you're going to tell me that there's a problem there you know i don't want to nitpick but yeah. i really dislike it when someone says beyond a certain threshold because yeah. it uh, sort of implies a certain implementation technique right but actually the, what we are doing has nothing to do with thresholds thresholds is old it's done it's done yeah. it's like patio <laughs> the only thing we could do right? back in the day right <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly right yeah. so this what we do is uh, automatically learning from the patterns it understands the complexity of the patterns and it automatically figures out misbehavior without applying thresholds right uh, but but otherwise yes it all this is happening and you know when we started out it took us about 2 years of fundamental r&d to really uh, you know come to a point where we can say look we can solve the problem because we were getting so much false positive from open source Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming then if you're looking at a a whole bunch of different kinds of data sources uh and you mentioned streaming tele- telemetry syslog snmp and so on are you giving me some kind of event correlation capability Yeah uh, absolutely and you know uh, what we are doing is we are actually this is a really good question we are making correlation network focus now what are networks right networks are all about topology uh and if you don't understand topology you don't understand the network So there are tools out there which will tell you they do correlation and they they are AI ops tools but what makes a AI ops tool network AI ops is understanding the topology and using the topology to automatically correlate let's say there is a pgp session which is multi hop and let's say the session flaps and you get events from both ends of the session and you get traffic rerouting which happens in between because bgp changed unless you understand the topology the fact that there is a multi hop bgp session what the path is in between you can't put all this together we can mm. so this gets down to i i like to talk about ai ops as sometimes being superhuman in theory i could go and look at all those logs and correlate that stuff and if i knew that there was a problem in you know getting through the logs and and analyzing 30 gigabytes of logs and doing filtering and stuff to find the problem this is where you want some sort of tool that's going to do that for you and so i know 
that there's a problem in here because I can work this out. And then that's when AI ops becomes superhuman, right? So, you know, that that's a really, really good, uh, good way to think about it, right? Because mm. ultimately, um, we, we like to say in a lot of cases that we are augmenting humans. Because mm. uh, certain things, of course, the humans can, can do, but it might take them a long time, right? And uh, certain things humans cannot do. So if I've yeah. got a billion syslog messages in a day, and I want to find that a few needles in that haystack, that's very difficult for humans well, to do. Well, you don't want to specify the needle. You don't want to say, I'm looking for a three-inch needle with a, you know, that's one inch, you know, one millimeter wide. And and I think also the thing about this is it's automated. So this AI ops is actually a correlation of automation as well as this correlation. Like it's doing it for you, which is what I think about. Yeah, you know, your first point is really good that you don't want to, yeah. you don't even know what the needle is. We like to call it unknown unknowns. So in those billions of syslog a day, suddenly a log shows up with an ASIC parity error. Well, mm. you don't know you're looking for an ASIC parity error. Maybe it shows up a few times in a year, if at all. But the first time it does, you want to catch it. Yeah. So we've built yeah. uh, one of our algorithms is based on log and syslog data, where it can catch these unknown unknowns without dropping any logs. It learns the, the model and it says, oh, you know what, this ASIC parity error, I haven't seen it before. So it's uh, that capability is actually supremely powerful. Uh, and then, of course, to be able to auto-correlate it with other changes, for example, that ASIC parity error might be yeah. resulting in packet drops, you know? One thing I've noticed with AI ops, and there are a lot of vendors promoting AI ops in the marketplace, and that's that's just a realization. But one of the things I'm noticing about your product is it's not just niched into one type of networking. It's not like, oh, I'm just doing the Wi-Fi or I'm just doing the WAN or something like that. You're actually saying Orgera can be applied to any type of network, on-prem, off-prem, whatever. That's exactly right. And in fact, we've got production deployments today across mm-hmm. SD-WAN, data center, hybrid cloud, public cloud. And, you know, people used to actually uh, really be skeptical that this can be done. But we have very deep networking DNA in the company, including the founding team and the very early team. And we always realize that networks, generally speaking, the, the structure, the protocols, the, the technology we use to build networks is very similar. The, the differences come when it comes to around scaling and some of the properties and the changes which happen, how fast they happen. So we built our tech day one to scale. And we built it day one to be able to adapt adapt, uh, and learn from the network as changes mm. happen. That allowed us to go across these net- different network types. And we're also purely multi-vendor, right? We are not uh, from a, a specific hardware vendor okay. whose motivation is to solve their problem. We work across any vendor you can literally name in the industry. That's unique, I think. That's not something everybody does at this point in time. That's right. That's right. And it, it's hard mm. to do because you also have to take an approach where you can use both standard-based uh, APIs as well as proprietary APIs. A lot of engineering needed. It's not mm. just the machine learning. You know, people people get fixated on the machine learning. But I go back to my early days in Juniper and in the routing industry. Uh, the early routing software, which people like Juniper and Cisco shipped, you should ask mm. yourself, how many lines of code was BGP compared to everything that, that shipped in a Juniper or a Cisco box? Yeah. It's probably less than 0.1%. Uh, but people just think of BGP code, right? This is the yeah. same way. The amount of software needed to make this network AI ops work is humongous. A lot of it is in the ingestion, in the data engineering, right. and of course, model. machine learning. Uh, yeah, model, you know, but building the model, ingesting, you know, because if you've got to bring in a configuration from 
you know, a wide range, hundreds of devices, then you've got to create your own modeling language to say, if I read a switch, here's the default model for that. doesn't matter what the, you know, how it gets it, whether it's Sonic or iOS or Junos, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. So one thing which I will point out though, that we are not really in the configuration game. Mm. The way the way we learn the what we call the network model is we learn the topology and the relationships of the network using open config, using SNMP. We learn the network okay. model yeah, using standard protocols. So if I read that right, what you're saying there is you read the configuration of the box to build the model. But at this point, you're not actually into configuring um, the network. So you're not saying you're not closing the loop here, which is, oh, I can see this is a problem. Let me do something for you, because that's not. That's not what most people want. We just want to know that there's a problem. You know, actually, that's a highly controversial area. So I'll tell you the approach we have taken and what I think the market wants, right? So ultimately, Mm. this desire that there's a machine which sits, which figures out all the problems in the network and automatically goes and makes some change. So you've got, you know, life is really beautiful uh, soon after, right? That's uh, somewhere deep in the human psychology. We all want that. Uh, so, but there's a long journey to get there. That's, that's our approach. So we don't think that ultimately making changes back into the network is where the industry will not go. It will go there. Mm. Uh, but there's a, there's a difficult journey to it. So our yeah, first step yeah. was let's figure out the, the high fidelity problems which are happening in the network. Yeah, Today you have to work out what's happening before you can fix it. And so getting that stable exactly. and getting right. customers to trust it, you know, to, to believe that the, it's going to take time. Yeah. Right. But now what's happening is our customers are beginning to trust it. So some yeah. of our customers are beginning to drive changes back to the network. Good example is optics in the data center is misbehaving. Let's go and cost out that interface. Our customers are beginning to do that. Uh, and that's happening using our customers' automation pipelines. And we are building more and more uh, those features in-house as well going forward. Are there other specific customer use cases or examples you can give of, of folks using Octera in the real world? There are tens of use cases. I'll pick one, which is around TCP retransmits. So TCP retransmits are a very good uh, proxy for application misbehavior caused by the network. So what we do is we take the right forms of networking data, S-flow, IP fix are two examples. We figure out TCP retransmits proactively in certain sections of the network. For example, they could be caused by fabric congestion in the data center because packets are being dropped on specific interfaces. Those packet drops are causing TCP retransmits, which in turn is resulting in application latency. They can figure all this out and automatically correlate it. And this is a very, you can say, high value use case in data center and hybrid cloud and public cloud and also SD-WAN. Yeah, my guess is the high value there is that these uh, issues between is it an app, is it the network problem tend to be very difficult to resolve with both sides wanting to blame the other. So being able to gather up this information and present and say, here's what we're seeing, this is what's happening, could be very useful when you're trying to figure out, is this an app problem, is this a network problem? Exactly. And, you know, this is one of those unsolved things because it's always finger pointing and it's the whole notion of meantime to innocence. And a lot of people are trying to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, really, it's crazy, right? And it is. Uh, well, I call it, you call it mean time to innocence. I call it going home at five o'clock. I don't want to be there, at, you know, seven o'clock at night trying to troubleshoot down. <laughs> is there a performance problem or is it? No, I just want to go home. So mean time to innocence, you know, is the same as getting home on time. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Yes. But I think it also makes, you know, the efficiency of a help desk operation so much better because you're either avoiding the call to the help desk in the start 
um, by picking up things before the users start to report them and or you've got you know, you might be checking the system to, when there's a help desk query and going, no, no, there's nothing coming from Altera. I know that the network's running okay. Well, somewhere in the middle of that is the reality, right? Yeah. See, actually, one of the things which uh, which our customers find a lot of value is that we can find ish things before they happen. Mm. So uh, before outages happen, we can really figure out anomalies in advance. And that takes you from a very reactive posture where you're always chasing the problem as an operations team a very proactive posture where you can fix things before they break. And uh, we, we are finding that our customers can fix up to 50% of the issues and avoid outages before they really they happen. And that, that's supremely, supremely valuable. Well, that does uh, wrap up the time we have. If you're interested in finding out more about Ogterra, just go to ogterra.com slash packet pushers. That's A-U-G-T-E-R-A.com slash packet pushers. Thank you, Rahul, for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers, find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.